So I'm just curious, how many of you, when you were children, loved to play the game, follow the leader, or Simon Says? Now, I might be dating myself a little bit. I don't even know if kids nowadays still play those games or not. But when I was a kid at school, we played those games all the time. We would have a huge group of kids playing follow the leader. One kid was picked as the leader, and he would go off and do these crazy things through the playground, and we had to uh, you know, basically imitate and do exactly what the leader did. Or when we would play Simon Says, this one we played a lot at school. A lot of my elementary teachers used that kind of on Friday afternoon to kind of encourage the kids to do their homework all week long. We'd get these little stars every time we did our homework. And at the end, the kids with a certain number of stars could play Simon Says for some little treats for the weekend. And all the kids seemed to love those games, <laughs> except for me. I hated those games. The reason I didn't like them is because I wasn't any good at them. I would always lose. And the reasons I would, the reason why I would lose is because I was easily distracted. And not only was I easily distracted by all the things around me, I would just plain forget what the leader did. I would forget what Simon told me to do. And so I lost all the time. Well, All throughout the Bible, we can actually see that the people of God are called to follow, to follow the leader. They are called to follow God. But just like in my example of my childhood, we see again and again and again the people of God not doing so well at following the leader, not doing so well at following God because they forget what the leader told them to do. They forget what God said, or they become distracted by all the pretty shiny things in the world, all the temptations of life. You know, here in our church environment, we use and we say language like becoming more like Christ, or we follow Jesus, or be imitators of Christ. But what do those terms actually mean? How how do they play out in how you and I live our lives in the world today? So today we are continuing our series. We're going through uh, the book Convergence by John Thompson, as well as some leadership stuff that I've put together and kind of tried out with my life group over the past year. And we're talking about spiritual gifts and we're talking about spiritual disciplines and how they work together to build us up to accomplish God's purpose for the church and for your life, for my life. Last week, we kicked this series off and we laid a foundation showing that every single follower of Jesus is called in their life to have influence. Every follower of Jesus is called to be salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. It's a call to have influence. And it's so incredibly crucial to lay a foundation and to start here. See, the church, you, I, all of us together, we need to have a solid understanding of what our purpose is, of what God created the church for, of what God expects from our lives. You see, when the church is no longer the salt of the earth, 
When the church is no longer the light of the world, it loses its meaning and it loses its purpose in the world. People may still gather, people may still worship, people may still be doing something, but they're not accomplishing the purpose that God has for our lives to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. And so before we kind of dive deeper into the topic of spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts, I want to spend another week adding to the foundation that we started last week. So if you missed last week's um, message, you can always go back to our YouTube channel and you can find it there, or um, you can you know, follow along on other social media like Facebook and you can find the sermons that way as well. But again, the whole point before we can really get a good grasp of the purpose of spiritual disciplines and the purpose of spiritual gifts in our lives is this foundation that we need to lay. And so that's what we're going to kind of continue to do today. And we're going to do that by looking at the topic of following Jesus. See, we know the call is to be a follower of Jesus. But what does that mean exactly? That's what I want us to do today. So we're going to be looking at a number of passages from the New Testament today to help us really dive in and get a good understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the call to then follow him and how that plays out in our lives. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to start in John chapter 13. I'm going to read just a couple of verses here in John chapter 13. I'm going to be starting in verse 13. And now this happens towards the end of Jesus's ministry. This is the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And Jesus is sharing a meal with his closest followers, his closest friends. And they go into this upper room to share the Passover meal together. And Jesus disrobes, puts on a towel, and then washes the feet of his disciples. He puts himself into the lowest position in the room. He puts himself into the position of a servant, washing feet. And then Jesus says these words here in John chapter 13, uh, verses 13 to 15. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. About 20 years ago, I was in Orlando, Florida. I was down there for a business trip. That was back in the days when I still worked in the computer industry. And the big software company that I was specialized in had their big annual convention at Disney World. And so it was a great week at Disney World, playing with all new technology, getting updated on my certification exams. But then on the Friday before flying home, I actually went and participated in a Bible study. And that study was being put on by Patrick Morley, who is the author of the book, The Man in the Mirror, which was a huge influence in my early Christian life, trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian man living in the world today. And so I went to this Bible study and he was teaching on this notion that I'd never heard before. 
And it was the idea of picking one or two verses to be your life verse. Now, that might seem like quite the daunting task. Like, how do you pick just two verses out of the entire Bible to say, no, those, that's the verse I'm going to like hang my hat on that I'm going to hinge my life to. Well, I prayed about that a lot, and I kind of studied a whole bunch of different things, and I landed here in John chapter 13. Specifically, I landed at verse 15, and I have used this now for almost 20 years as, kind of, as my life verse as the call on how I want to live out being a husband, being a father, being a pastor, being a friend, being a neighbor, being a son, whatever title I have in the relationship that I'm in. Jesus says these words, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have set you an example You know, for the longest time, I've seen that verse just simply to be a call to servant leadership, right? To be a humble leader, to not be overly, you know, arrogant or so proud of yourself or proud of your abilities, proud of your accomplishments, but to humble ourselves, right? There are other passages in scripture that kind of point to that too. The apostle Paul talks about, you know, do not think about yourself as more highly as you ought, (laughs) Instead, you know, you need to humble yourself a little bit. You know, so there's all these passages that talk about that. But these words of Jesus, as we are specifically talking about following him, are very profound because Jesus says something here. He says, I have set you an example. What does it mean when Jesus sets the example? Is it just the example of his actions? You know, so all of us should follow Jesus's example and physically wash feet of other people. Is that what he's pointing to? Is this an example? Is he telling us that we should just follow the example on his heart on how to treat other people? What does Jesus mean by the term follow me? Or I have set you an example, following my example. And I think to fully understand what it means to follow the example of Jesus, I think we need to understand and know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he came to earth. And so to answer that, you know, sometimes we can sit there and go, well, obviously I know who Jesus is. Obviously I know, you know, what he came to do. Let's not be too quick to jump to that conclusion. Let's let the scriptures, let's let the Bible kind of really open our eyes to make sure all of us together, regardless of our background, regardless of how long we've been following Jesus or how long we've just been curious about Jesus and checking out, you know, the claims of who he says he was. So, Again, the beauty of trying to really understand who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, the beauty of that question is the Bible answers that for us. And there's a great answer from the Apostle Paul written to the Philippians. And we can read here in Philippians chapter 2. And so I'm going to read this section here where uh, Paul gives us an amazing picture, an amazing picture of who Jesus is being fully God and fully man in what he accomplished. So let's read here, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, being fully God. Jesus, being fully man. For so many people, that's a huge stumbling block. It's one of these profound mysteries that makes the Christian faith unique. That no one else worships the God-man, Jesus. You see, as followers of Jesus, we don't believe he was simply a prophet, simply a good man, a good teacher, a good rabbi. Paul makes it very clear here of who he is, fully God and fully man. And so there's four key things that I just want us to really focus in on to make sure that we can lay a good foundation of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, so then we can look at what it means to follow his example, okay? So four quick things here I want you to see about Jesus here. is The first thing is we see in Jesus a mindset of humility. We see a mindset of humility, right? Here we see the humility of Jesus by being uh, just simply uh, willing to become human. You see, if Jesus is fully God... See, the early parts of the Bible talk about the creation of all things. And it talks about how, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John chapter 1, it talks about, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in those two passages, we see that in the creation account that Jesus is directly involved in creation, that Everything was created by him and through him and for him. And in that position of creator God, he humbles himself to dwell humbly among us. He didn't come as the rich and famous. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a religious elite. He was born into a poor family. He lived a humble life and then was willing to die a criminal's death, to be executed for crimes he never committed, right? And so this mindset that Paul is speaking about is the combination of humility and willingness to be used by God. That's the first thing that we see about Jesus is this mindset of humility, the second big thing that's really crucial is to see what Paul says is that Jesus is being in very nature God. Verse 6, talking about Christ Jesus, being in very nature God. 
God is so big and God is so incomprehensible. And here there's this very simple statement that Paul makes, just a few words. And in these few short words, God places Jesus in the Godhead, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Jesus in his, he is the very nature of God. You see, in order to carry out the divine plan of salvation, right, Jesus has to be fully God. But not only does he have to be fully God, he also has to be fully man. And so what we see next is so that, yes, Jesus has got a mindset of humility. He is the very nature of God. But then we see that there's this shift that happens from God's greatness. And we see in verse 7, the third point is that Jesus made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Right here, what we see is Jesus radically self-limiting his power in order to fully enter the human experience. See, Jesus never stopped being fully God, but Jesus willfully chose not to engage with his divine power while the work of salvation was being accomplished. See, and so why is that important? Right? Because if Jesus's remarkable life was simply an example of what God is capable of doing on earth, he wouldn't be an example we could follow. See, if Jesus was using and doing ministry and teaching out of his full divinity as God, he would be just like all kind of the ancient Greek and ancient Roman gods that we can read about in mythology. When you see Zeus and Hercules and all these other gods, you see them, oh my goodness, they're so incredibly powerful. Look what they're capable of doing because they're not human. They're gods. <laughs> and if Jesus is living out his divinity here on earth, then he can't be an example. Why? Because <laughs> you and I are not gods. We can't do that. Right? And so we see here that Jesus, uh, he makes himself nothing. He empties himself. He becomes nothing. He becomes human so that we could see him as the example. And not only that, it's so that he can actually be our substitute. You see, Jesus came to die in our place. And so he has to substitute for human sin. And the way he does that is by being human. And so that's what we see so far. We see Jesus having a mindset of humility. We see that he has the very, he's being in very nature God. He made himself nothing. And then the fourth point is that, that then God exalted him. Right When the emptying, the humbling, the living, and the dying of Jesus was finished, God the Father raised God the Son and exalted him over every other name in the earth. Right, And again, this is the critical difference between the Christian faith and every other faith. This is why we don't believe all religions worship the same God. Because as followers of Jesus, we believe in the Trinity of God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, eternal in that way. 
And that God, the Son, the second part of the Trinity, came to earth humbly as a servant, that he would empty himself of his divinity, that he would live a sinless life, and that he would die for our sin. You see, it's that life and it's that death that makes us right with God. You see, there's nothing else that makes us right before a holy God. There's no religion that can make you right before a holy God. There's no rules. There's no tradition. There's no rule book that you could follow that would make God pleased. Because the Bible teaches us that every single one of us has sin. And the penalty for any sin, no matter how small it is, because God is so great and because God is so incomprehensible, even the smallest little lie deserves the death penalty before that holy God. But praise be to God that we don't suffer the death penalty because of all of our little sins, that Jesus himself came to die in our place becomes our substitute. He takes our place and he gets what you and I should have received. And so kind of before I continue in the rest of this message today, maybe some of you are here with us today and and this is new information for you about who Jesus is, that Jesus is this substitute for you. And maybe you're here today and you have been trying to be a good girl, trying to be a good boy, trying to keep rules, hoping that you would please God. And I want you to know today that God is pleased, not because of your behavior, but because of the humility of Jesus, that he would be willing to die for you. And you could be made new, washed clean of your sin simply by believing that Jesus died and rose from the dead and then turn from your sin and turn to God. And you can do that real simply right where you are today. Just say a prayer to God right, right now from your home and say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came and died for me. Today I give you my life. Make me new and help me, Father, to grow in this newfound faith. And I ask that in Jesus' name. And if you pray that today, I want to celebrate with you. A little pop-up shows up where it says you could raise your hand. It's a little digital way that we could celebrate and rejoice with you. We see the numbers go up every time people click that. And then there's a second button that pops up that says connect with us. I would love it if you would just click that button and fill out the form that pops up. And just send your name and your email address. And I would love personally to follow up with you and just congratulate you and get some free resources into your hand to help you out on this new journey with Jesus, right? And so this is it. Here we have Jesus, the Savior. We have Jesus, his humility, very nature God, making himself nothing, God exalting him. And then Jesus calls us now to follow his example. We follow his example. We saw from this text in Philippians that Jesus is Lord. We saw that Jesus is Savior. Now let's see how Jesus is our model for living out the Christian life. That Jesus is the model, the example 
to live out the life that we are called to. See, Jesus says some pretty amazing words in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says this to his followers. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, just stop there, whoever believes in me. So if you just put your faith in Jesus today, that includes you. If you put your faith in Jesus 75 years ago, that includes you. And if you put your faith in Jesus at any time in between today and 75 years ago, that includes you. It's all of us. Whoever believes in me, look at what he says, will do the works I have been doing. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Well, what kind of work was Jesus doing? We can read a lot about them in John's gospel, that he healed, gave sight to the blind, that he made the lame walk, that he rose from the dead, that he cast out demons, that he healed the sick, people who have been sick for decades, internal bleeding, tons of different illnesses, and more and more and more things, turning water into wine, all of these things Jesus did. Those are his works. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And then he continues and says something crazy. He says, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the father. You know, in all the years that I've been pastoring, it's coming up on a few now, almost 16. In all those years, I think if we were really, really honest, I don't think a lot of Christians believe this verse. (laughs) I I, I don't think we believe it. I I don't think we believe this word, these words of Jesus that because of our belief in Jesus, we can do the same things Jesus did. Or because of our belief in Jesus, we can also together as the church universal do even greater things. You see, what happens, I think, in so many of us as followers of Jesus, when we read the Gospels, when we read the examples of Jesus, we know that he was fully God and fully man. But we look to his miracles And we go, well, the only reason Jesus is able to do those things is because he is God. Right? That, well, it's because he's God he can heal the sick. It's because he's God he can cast out the demons. It's because he's God he's able to do these things. He's God and I'm not. How many times have you ever said that? How many times have you heard another Christian say that? He's God and I'm not. You see, the problem with that language is um, you're sitting borderline of becoming a heretic. (laughs) What that means is, is you're borderline believing in a false doctrine. You see, um, there's been huge debate all throughout church history on the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. And two of the biggest heresies when it comes to Jesus is Jesus wasn't fully human. 
that he was something else. He was something divine or Jesus wasn't fully God. There wasn't anything God-like about him. Those are the two biggest heresies about Jesus. And I get it. It's a great mystery. How does fully man and fully God play together? It's going to be probably in my top 10 questions of asking Jesus when I get to heaven. Because it is. It's a mystery. But if you lean towards one side more than the other, then you step into false teaching, right? There, there was a group of people known as the Apollinarians kind of way back, and they believed that Jesus wasn't fully human. They believed that Jesus had a human body, but had the, the divine mind and power of God, not fully human, right? But if Philippians chapter 2 is true, that he is the very nature God and he emptied himself completely and didn't grasp, didn't, what does it say, didn't kind of hold on to his divinity, something to be used for his own advantage, right? If John's gospel is true, that Jesus has set for us an example that we should do as he has done, right? If those two things are true, how then do we actually live out being the examples of Jesus? Again, thankfully, the Bible gives us that answer. And we can get a glimpse of that answer from Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus. Let me read here in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. It says here, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. See, here you got the baptism of Jesus. And honestly, I, that was something early on in my faith that I really struggled with is why does Jesus need to be baptized? Right? If Jesus is without sin, why does Jesus need to repent of sin and be baptized? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. The first, a lot of theologians believe it's because he is um, setting an example for us to follow. Um, but also it shows how Jesus identifies with humanity in his baptism. And what we see in this moment of Jesus, fully God and fully man, identifying with sinful humanity, at this moment in Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit comes on him. And we get a clear picture of the Trinity at work here. We get God the Father. We get kind of heaven opening up and a voice declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's the affirmation of Jesus' divinity from God the Father in heaven. There is God the Son in the water. And then there's the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and comes in and indwells Jesus. And what's fascinating about that is that's exactly what happens to you and I when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus. When you and I repent of our sin, turn to God 
for the forgiveness of sin, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us too. For some people, it might have been a big event and you felt radically different the moment you did it. Some of you, you might have felt exactly the same. You're kind of like, I don't really feel too different. Whatever experience you went through in it, that's what happened, right? Jesus's experience is the same as you, your experience, my experience. And it's at that moment when the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus that he begins his ministry, right? We don't have any stories of Jesus doing ministry before this. I mean, we've got one story of Jesus when he was 12 years old of teaching in the temple, and people were kind of amazed by his understanding of the scriptures, but not enough to follow him, not enough to drop everything and go back, you know, to Jesus's hometown following 12-year-old Jesus, right? He was just kind of talking with them. And so, but it's at this moment, and you see an example of it right here, you know, uh, in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1, where it says, at once the Spirit sent him out. It's now the Holy Spirit in him who has prompted him to go into the wilderness. And this kind of, this, the, when it says that the Spirit sent him, like that, that language of sent, it's kind of like, I got to do this. There's no other option because he's just so prompted to go there. And what does he go to do? Well, he goes to get tempted by Satan and he's able to overcome the temptations of Satan, the power of Satan, because of the indwelt spirit within him, right? And so this is kind of what we see happening here. Now, is there's this, this moment that happens where the Holy Spirit's power and direction comes on to Jesus. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves as we look to Jesus as being the example, what does that mean for you and for me who have that same Holy Spirit, <laughs> Again, if Jesus did everything he did simply out of his divinity, you and I could never use Jesus as the example. You and I would never be able to accomplish in our humanness what Jesus accomplished. But if Jesus is fully human while being fully God and is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is doing ministry out of his spiritual gifts, his spiritual gifts of healing, his spiritual gifts of teaching, his spiritual gifts of works, of service, of mercy. If he's doing ministry out of those gifts, then maybe Jesus really is our model. Maybe Jesus really is the example. Maybe the words that Jesus said that we can do the same work he did and we could do even greater things because in the church universal, there's so much more of us, each using our spiritual gifts, each doing ministry through that strength, through that power, instead of just doing it in our own humanness, doing it in our own power, right? This is where Jesus sets up that example. So as we continue the series, we can see Jesus' example of spiritual disciplines, of his prayer life of his reading of scripture, of worship, of service, of being a blessing to other people. These disciplines in Jesus's life helps him to know God the Father, helps him to know the will of his Father. 
And then out of his spiritual disciplines, uh, sorry, spiritual gifts, he does the will of his father that he heard in his disciplines. And so that's the call for you and for me. So this week, my encouragement to you would be to spend more time in these Bible verses that we looked at today. They're in the note tab here at Church Online if you need to look at them again. But I want you to really see this. And I want you to ask yourself, have I been living out my Christian experience thinking I could never do these things? Have you ever used the language of, he's God, I'm not. He can, I can't. Again, so often I hear of people who have sin, struggles, things in their life, and they use language like, I'm always going to have this. And it's like, well, it's not quite what the Bible teaches, that there is strength, that there is power available to overcome those things. Again, some people, it's instant, instantly healed. Other people, it's a journey. But ask yourself, as you spend time this week in these texts, have you ever denied the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you started leaning towards kind of being one of those kind of Apollinarians, thinking that Jesus isn't really fully human? (laughs) And if the answer for you is, yeah, I think that's what I've been doing, that's okay. Because guess what? I've done it too. And together as a church family, we can ask God for forgiveness and say, God, from this day forward, we're going to trust you to truly do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine by your power in your church. And that God, as we embark on this spiritual journey together, learning about spiritual gifts, learning about spiritual disciplines, that God, that we would have confidence confidence that you're going to do more than we could ask or imagine because of Jesus's example and Jesus's call on all of our lives. You see, when you and I come to Jesus for forgiveness and we are filled by the spirit, when we follow Jesus in his disciplines, when we learn and grow and recognize our spiritual gifts as we live those out, trusting and, and, and being changed and letting our character reflect the fruit of the Spirit, we, just like Jesus, can do even greater things. So let's pray together. Father God, I praise you and thank you for the example of Jesus. I praise you and thank you that he is our Lord. I praise you and thank you that he is our teacher. I praise you and thank you that he is our savior. But I thank you as well that he is our example. And when he says words like you can do this, we can trust that because he understands fully what we go through as human beings in this world. He understands all the temptations we face. He understands all the trials that we face. And he sends us the Holy Spirit to come in us, to guide us, to counsel us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to grow us, and to strengthen us for God's will in the world, for God's purposes in the world, and for our great joy. 
So Lord, this week, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, whether we study these verses in a life group or whether we look at them in our own uh, private time. And God, I pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts and that we would trust you more and more with living our lives through your power. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.